Welcome to Primordial Tao, Present Tao, a podcast about all things Taoism. Our conversations and interviews will discuss ancient and modern Taoist wisdom teachings, spiritual practices, seasonal longevity and healing traditions, relationship guidance, and profound insights on walking an authentic and meaningful path, however you choose to walk it. Welcome home to the ocean of Tao. It sort of implied that we, we have to unravel some things. And that's why I sometimes think of Nagong as kind of like this, you know, undeniable opportunity to unravel some things. Or what was the, one of the titles we were playing with there? Uh, an intentional unraveling. Yeah, I think we were calling that the intentional unraveling of all your BS or something. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because uh, that's what's going to happen is if you're going to sit in, in an embodied inquiry uh, of state and sensation and somatization and stuff, you're going to have to undo the unconscious doing to be conscious of layers of unconscious doing until you're beyond the unconscious layers of doing. Welcome to Primordial Dao Present Dao. This is episode 10, Nagong, an intentional unraveling, or a wholehearted reunion. We're still deciding on the title. Hey Mike, how's it going? In circles like the Tao. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, a little bit uh, changing up the gears a little bit, and we're actually doing this podcast in person for the first time. Yep. So me and Mike are out here in uh, Nelson, BC. Uh, we're outside in a nice little, I guess, tiny home, and uh, we're gonna get into some pretty deep stuff today. Hey, Mike. Yeah, and uh, we're by the highway a little bit, so uh, just try and join us on the journey as cars go flying by, and I hope the sound isn't too disruptive. Yeah, there's a. I, you were telling me about this three, <laughs> three-hour tour here. Oh yeah, this this is a. It's Sunday, Labor Day weekend, 2023, and for those of us who like to ride motorcycles, this is the kind of in quotes church day to go on this three-hour beautiful mountain highway road of beautiful corners and vistas and sceneries and lakes and rivers. So, uh, we're definitely going to be hearing some, some bikers zooming on by. All right. As well they go. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's what's going on on the outside. Uh, so Nagong, <clears throat> I guess it's, we're going to get into a bit more of what's going on on the inside. Uh, that's, that's the idea. The, uh, the implication of Nagong for sure is to, start finding out, finding out what our practice means on the inside. Cool. Okay, can we get into a little bit of like Qigong, Nagong? Sure. I think that's a good place to start. Okay. Uh, can you give me a bit more clarity on when you say Qigong, Nagong, what way those two things are sitting in your mind so I can, I don't know, start there with you? So like Qigong is obviously about our practice and movements and flows and, you know, about the body and we kind of go through this process and then we're now we're kind of taking this step kind of more deeper inward into this nagong and so just kind of making that distinction into 
what I guess we're going to talk about this for the next couple hours, but uh, getting into like starting from the body and moving into the snake on space. Mm -hmm. As is often the case with, you know, all things Qigong and Neigong and Chinese uh, language, I think the characters are a good place to start with that. So Gong is the same, Qigong, Neigong. And Gong, we often describe as the practice itself or the skills implicit in the practice. Or there's a context of what you call meritorious action or behavior uh, which is sort of like the idea of maybe ethically walking the elder across the street carrying their groceries so it isn't just that we have a practice the practice has a meaning um, gong also implies especially in the context of gong fu like martial arts uh, a certain capacity a capacity that you might have to rely on in in, in a situation in the say in the martial arts where you're gonna have to show up in a way and and kind of prove your capacity and there's also another quality and we'll come back to this around capacity uh in the sense of gong and qigong and neigong and gong fu and all kinds of gongs um that i would describe as a capacitor or not only the ability to kind of performatively do something but the felt sense and perhaps even the the sense people might experience uh, of you when they're around you, that you hold something in a certain way. And, and I'll come back to what a capacitor is maybe in, in a bit. But So Gong is, you know, covering all of those relationships, those experiences, and, and those ways of approaching practice, you know, across the board of all of them. Qi Gong obviously has to do with whatever Qi means to you, right? And that can get very confounding in the west when we explicitly hold chi as a substance an object a thing in a place and you know it needs to be going in the right direction and this and that and uh, as a doctor of chinese medicine and a teacher of people who practice chinese medicine that's always a tricky thing uh, when we get too caught up in the literal western approach to chi because as cool as that might seem you know in the sense of harry potter magic or something it's not uh, the complete relationship or the complete practice um, because when we maybe take a moment and step back from what it could be or what it um, what it could be for the question really is in the sense of going and practice what it's like because we practice because of what it feels like to practice because of how those shifts of state shifts of sensation um, that change in our ability to experience tangibly, you know, our structure, our somatic self, our breath, our, our emotional experience, our conditioned experience, our, you know, hidden frights and cringes and flinches and things that inhabit our body. It's the ability to actually be present to and feel the sensation of practice. And I often describe chi as more of the kind of quality of sensation or aliveness or uh, mojo or other things that... Uh, you're going to experiencing going to be experiencing when you're doing certain kinds of practice or certain forms or certain kinds of breath work so qigong can be in the left brain uh, a lot of processing and doing and configuring and fixing and maybe enhancing the the thing we think of as qi uh, which can be a huge deal for people but it's really not that much of what the practice is for because in the practice you're working with sensation with awareness with the isness of you know what's happening so again in that context chi is sensation more or state more the or the quality of state more the nuance the you know more red more yellow more pine more cedar more this more that 
that's qualitative. So it's you know got a lot to do with what you're doing with attention and sensation. Neguang obviously includes that um, because consciousness and embodiment is obviously going to be dealing with all of that in, in that way. But something that's interesting about Neguang, I guess, historically is that it's a part of every practice. It's a part of martial arts. It's a part of meditation. It's a part of Buddhist practice, Taoist practice. Uh, it's just the implication that you're moving inward. Now, this is a weird example, but for anyone who's listening who's a martial artist uh, or knows martial artists or reads articles about that stuff, there's been this really kind of humorous uh, conversation or argument for maybe 30 years uh, or as long as I've been reading articles about this stuff uh, between internal martial arts and external martial arts. And the internal martial arts are like Neijia, the the you know inner work Nekong kind of things. Uh, whereas external martial arts are the ones where you can, you know, see people breaking boards and yelling and doing the whatevers that uh, make it seem like it's, I don't know, some kind of action movie version of, of you know, punching and kicking and stuff. Mm-hmm. And those are pretty arbitrary, you know, things in the sense of what one or the other is. But it's been this really interesting kind of like terminology dance for a very long time. And almost every article does the same thing, going, these are really ridiculous terms, and this is why, la, la, la. So I'm going to take my little swing at, these are really ridiculous <laughs> terms, because it's all subjective anyway. Uh, so what I would, if I was to talk about internal martial arts and external martial arts, I would prefer to use the terms subtle and obvious. Right? Okay. So if you see someone, you know, punching a board wrapped up in ropes, shrieking and bleeding in the, from their knuckles and sweating and you know obviously preparing to punch somebody else as hard as they possibly can to the detriment of their own you know probable tissue health at, at some level uh but there's an only one way to find out like if you're gonna ever train to hit someone really hard you're gonna have to go and hit things really hard because that's just obvious now how it is you approach getting your hand and maybe using your elbow to move your hand and maybe using your hips to move your ribs to move your shoulder blade to move your elbow to move your hand and then maybe using both active and passive kind of coordination with all of the muscles inside all of the joints between the earth and the person you're hitting probably with the earth on a certain level if you're doing things subtly uh, is more subtle and you can't really see that you know unless you've been training for 30 years and explicitly looking at uh, the most subtle ways of creating waveform of of momentum throughout the body, throughout the joint structures, partly biomechanically and partly almost in a liquid way, right? So there's subtle things, right? So we have internal, external, but we also have subtle and obvious. So when we think of Nekong, it's the stuff that you would be doing in practice that could be martial arts, Qigong, Buddhist, Taoist, you know, something modern and contemporary or perhaps made up or, you know, why not? People made this stuff a lot. Of, made people have made this stuff up a long time ago. So it, let's not poo-poo the people trying to make stuff up here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but this context of moving inwards uh, to inner cultivation, inner work, inner capacity—the stuff you can't see—still um, brings the conversation, I guess, into the context of doing, not into the context of what it's like or why we're doing it. So let's both, if we can both agree or fist bump that we're talking about Nagong as the stuff you can't really see, no matter what you're training, that happens on the inside that's subtle, that's probably pretty subjective. And when we move our awareness to that quality or that relationship with practice, 
in in the sense of being inner what comes up to, for me is there's a boundary we're talking about and that boundary goes from obvious to subtle from overt to perhaps immersive from causal to more inductive from uh, and this is a delicious way to put it from the experience of separation to coming back to non-separation because if we're going to work in this idea of ne kong the, the inner experience what if the inner experience isn't the threshold between the outside of your body and the inside of your body what if the threshold is the idea that you're separate from the universe or you are the universe so as we move into this you know paradigm of practices and and approaches to meditation and breath work and other aspects of cultivation why are we doing it what would that be like Right? Is it just, you know, fancy shenanigans with your perineal floor muscles and how that affects part of the back of your brain, which we'll talk about? Or are we actually on the journey of what all human beings have done as they become more engaged, more engaged in the meaning and the why of practice than the how of practice? Because sure, Nekong is definitely implicitly very um, nuanced and subtle in the way we actually approach the how of practice but what it's like borders on the why we practice which is what we call the liminal experience or moving kind of beyond the separate self beyond the known beyond the predictable but we kind of have to sneak up on that with some predictable things to get there so maybe that was a bit more long-winded than I intended but uh yeah negong is is the invitation to to the real experience of being uh, through the attrition of all of the false layers of identity and, and things like that. And perhaps I would say, uh, for those who are maybe new to the practice or maybe have uh, other traditional backgrounds, it's basically a form of embodied meditation. Meditation is meditation. There's many approaches to sit down and calm down and find perhaps some stillness and silence. And maybe there's an and after that, maybe there's not. Um, and we can approach that experience primarily as consciousness, or we can approach that experience much more as embodied animistic experience as sort of the ground of consciousness. And that's, I think, where Negong, at least in the, in the way I was taught, is, is pretty unique because, um, and I'm, this is my favorite quote of probably the last five years, um, the body is the mind before the mind is the mind. So if you want to become mindful, you're going to have to be hip deep in the muck or the purity of your embodied experience and and that's the gong that's the work of negong is you know maybe two three years of deconstructing a lot of unconscious imprinting and habits and conditioning that are embodied because that's the one who's seeing your practice as perception wow that's uh that's really cool um <laughs> just gonna take a second and appreciate all that um that's that's the real the real deal um co so compared to like a lot of these other traditions that uh mike and i know you studied a lot of the different traditions um Nagong is the only one that really or maybe it's the only one that really focuses on that embodied sense well qigong uh, <coughs> uh allies itself with that but when we get caught up in the chi noun, you know, feel your dantian and push things around your meridians, 
we're not collaborating with the body as the body for the body as much as we're trying to make the body obey the presupposition of whatever it is the guidance is you know on the sense of doing and there's always going to be a part of that we have a left brain for a reason but when we're working with the implicit embodied experience it's about learning to peel back layers of conscious and unconscious sensation which drive what you might call alertness you know you take a person with significant ptsd the first thing that happened in the sense of how ptsd works on on human beings and neurologically and stuff like that is it creates hypervigilance so when we're thinking about going deep into the embodied part of meditation and this has been a part of the uh, training for as long as um, it's been around, but probably more explicitly in, in the tradition that I studied in, deconstructing that part of our experience consciously, sort of step by step, is the thing that makes the most sense to me, especially as a clinician, because no matter what's going on in your life, unless you've lived in a bubble of something, uh, which would bring up the inquiry is, why do you want to do meditation if you're perfectly fine anyway? <laughs> right. Um, it sort of implied that we, we have to unravel some things. And that's why I sometimes think of Nagong as kind of like this, you know, undeniable opportunity to unravel some things. Or what was the, one of the titles we were playing with there? Uh, an intentional unraveling. Yeah, I think we were calling that the intentional unraveling of all your BS or something. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because yeah. that's what's going to happen is if you're going to sit in, in an embodied inquiry uh, of state and sensation and somatization and stuff you're going to have to undo the unconscious doing to be conscious of layers of unconscious doing until you're beyond the unconscious layers of doing. So there's kind of peeling back layers of that and that that's why it takes some time. And mm -hmm. in modern life, because we're so disoriented with distraction and stimulation addiction and things, um, we often have to take that hypervigilant dopamine driven distraction need for some kind of stimulation to just be at at peace never mind restfully at peace like who is the one meditating asks a very different question in 2023 than i think when i i first went into like a huge training uh in nekong in 1985 86 i think if i have that right um nine months like every day an hour of sitting on these wobbly little benches getting our pelvises and spines and byways and weigh-ins and you know other parts of our inner anatomy uh, sorted out so we could breathe properly and we could become actually still and actually vertical and uh, do all of that. And um, for those of you who don't remember, 1986 uh, TV was pretty boring and there was no internet and I think we still had rotary dial-up phones and uh, you actually had to remember everyone's phone number to get a hold of anyone. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even born then, so... Yeah, anyway, I'm just I'll saying... I'll take your like, word for it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the dinosaurs were really fun to ride around. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, I guess I'm just bringing that up in, in the sense that the, the amount of condition distraction was light years away from what it is now. And I'm just remembering one of the patriarchs of the Taoist tradition I studied in from a thousand years ago saying, life is too stimulating now. You have to remove yourself from the world to have any chance at enlightenment or what, what Taoism would refer to as a reunion with, with Tao, which is sort of our version of enlightenment in, in, in that sense. So, I mean, it's we, with the attrition we, we face nowadays is just the attrition of attention because, I mean, how many times a day do we check our phone? 
right? 16, 17. Yeah, most people, it's at least two to three times an hour, right? And if you don't do that, you're physically and somatically in distress. Maybe not distress like PTSD, but you're definitely itchy. <laughs> itchy, yeah. So, you know, oh, yeah, and we probably haven't had this uh, conversation yet, but a good Nagong sit is three to four hours of immersive stillness and breath and what attention is. So, you know, things have shifted since I first got into this a lot. <laughs> Wow. So I'm glad I still have uh, good teachers and good practice, but it's um, for people who are new to this. I mean, we're, we're, we're diving in to a very, very uh, agitated ocean compared to what it was, you know, what, it, what was it 30 or 40 years ago uh, when I got into this and uh, yeah, almost 40 years ago. And I think you had to des- had described to a four of like, if you were landing a helicopter, we have a little bit of extra turbulence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so no, nowadays we're, we're we're just looking at this, you know, through a bit more chaos, but it's the same opportunity, the the, the same kind of layers of, of deconstruction. It, it's just uh, I just encourage people to appreciate that it's going to be itchy and fiddly and anxious and you know hyper vigilant, um, or or more than, than maybe it was a long time ago. Wow. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your background and and how you're like uniquely qualified to, to talk about this stuff? <laughs> uniquely qualified. Uh, I I would dispute that I'm uniquely more qualified than anybody uh, who's been sitting still for forty years. But um, well, I, I would say like uh, in 1984-85, I met someone uh, named Eric Tuttle, who's uh, lineage holding in both Shaolin and and the Nature uh, internal art traditions, if I can now use that term and not be kind of laughing at myself. Um, who's undeniably one of the highest level practitioners in the Western world, and he's now in Victoria and teaches there. And um, I met him almost 40 years ago, as a little punk teenager who was at the time teaching karate, believe it or not. And, um, very luckily, you know, he took me under his wing and, and, uh, within a year we had done that year long, uh, nine months meditation training as well as, you know, uh, external martial arts, internal martial arts. And I'm, you know, not really rolling my eyes using those words, but you know, they're just words, <laughs> um, and trained with him pretty much daily for about seven years. And then went uh, on to train with other teachers in, in Taoist tradition and martial arts and uh, different practices. And then I had decided I wanted to be a Taoist priest, believe it or not, and um, had made various, uh, I guess, uh, experimental approaches to that with different people and traditions. And there's, I mean, it's not like you can just there's no drive-through Taoist priest, you know, situation. <laughs> so, you know, it's more about... Uh, there's no online course. <laughs> well, well, there's no online back then, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you're kind of swimming in the quagmire of the people who, who wave their hands in the public, you know, venue. Uh, uh, back then, it would have been the mid-90s of like, hey, I'm a so-and-so and, you know, follow me around. And, and a lot of those people were not the real thing. And luckily, I uh, was... It's a bit of a story I'm going to skip over, but um, just before I decided to go to China, I was invited to study Taoism and Chinese medicine with his family uh, in a village kind of folk tradition of Chinese medicine and Taoism. 
and uh, I had kind of attached myself to certain monastic traditions that I wanted to study in and kind of I had a certain I guess value trust with those traditions because they'd been around a long time and they were kind of like the core ones that people talked about and you could read about and you know well back then there was probably five books you could read but um it was a bit of a, a leap of faith to decide to go and study in, in a village folk shaman medicine tradition in, instead of like the, the big monastic traditions or a big university to be a Chinese doctor. But uh, I made that leap. And so I got to study in what's called the Idao Huanyuan tradition or the what you might translate as returning to the source or to revert uh, to the origin of certain dilemmas by moving towards the origin of certain dilemmas until you get to the origin of what it is to be individuated human to what it is to be perhaps less an individual individuated individuated human and more you know the source of consciousness itself and uh all, all of those layers of practice but e dao huan yuan means to go through that process while you're practicing medicine as a clinician and that book e dao huan yuan was first uh written in i think it was published in 1642 in southern China uh, as a part of, believe it or not, a channeling cult in in folk village uh, Taoism. <laughs> and they were channeling this guy Lu Dongbin, who's sort of the patriarch of half of modern uh, alchemic Taoist practice. And uh, they had channeled all of his, his, well, I'm not pro or against channeling it's just kind of funny that that's where this huge book came from and a bunch of the book was about chinese medicine and pulse taking and then chinese medicine and kind of a folk shaman version of herbology and then this really big deep dive into the spiritual embryo process of Taoist alchemy and i don't i don't want to go too deep into this because i don't want to lose people in the weeds of what Taoist alchemy terms mean or not but uh that was the way I was brought into that tradition is please become a Chinese doctor and go and heal people. And this is the Negong and Neidan tradition that we do. And it's very focused on healing people. And this, this is something that I really want to make sure I, I bring to this conversation. So when I was studying Chinese medicine with them, I had already taken probably the first year of Chinese medicine uh, through just reading books and, you know, studying meridians and, uh, I had a pretty good idea of what you could learn in English at the time about Chinese medicine. And one of the courses that we did after going through all the fundamental stuff when I was training with this family, the Liang family from uh, Lintao village in southern China. It's a village tradition, that's the village it's from. Uh, they had this course called Qing Tripping, which means basically mental and emotional orientation or disorientation disorders or how people can get really uptight <laughs> or really collapse or really this or really that. And I'd never heard of that before. Like I did not know, uh, not that I had any reason to believe that I should know anything, but I had not even heard that Chinese medicine had a psychiatry department. And the Liang family was, that was their specialization in medicine was Qing Bing, the disorientations wow. of the mind and the body and uh, the heart and the soul and the kind of cognitive disorientations and stuff. So when we started getting into the Qing Bing course, we started learning about a part of Tao's practice called Shan Ming Zhe Dao, which is sort of moving towards spiritual luminosity, which means you have to refine and redefine what it is your candle is in the sense of luminosity and Jing and Shan and 
Um, that's sort of where the alchemic part starts or the Nagong-ish part starts because you have to undo the conditioned doing. And then the conditioned doing might be stuff you collaborated with as an adolescent to become a man or a woman and to, you know, play the sexual competition game and be cool or whatever in the generation you decided to come into the universe to be cool. <laughs> but um, we have kind of voluntary conditioning, then we have familial conditioning, then we have kind of genetic ancestral lineage conditioning, and then we have whatever... I don't know, modern social media and stuff does to us that's never been a part of this before. So the first part is the undoing, right? And I've been, I've been a clinician for almost 30 years and my focus being trauma, addiction, and autoimmune disease and the intersection of where all that complicated stuff happens. Um, the only reason I do that as a clinician is because of that training. Because sure, diet, got to do that, you know, herbs, supplements, qigong, got to do that, but who is the one going through all of this stuff and why, as an individuated being, do you see the world and yourself within the world in that way, and how much of that is truly authentically you, and how much of that is conditioned to be you? And this is a tricky thing as a doctor, because my job, job as a doctor isn't to be people's, you know, monastery priest, but sometimes the those definitions can get a bit blurry because, you know, if you have a complex disease that's eventually going to kill you, it's life or death for your life. Just like meditation is life or death for your consciousness as, as an existing being, you're either going to awaken to what this is or you're going to stay asleep or hide under your bed, you know, and that's okay. Nothing wrong with hiding under your bed. It's lots of fun things down there. I'm sure. <laughs> you know, sorry, I seemed a little bit judgy, but... Um, that's the dance as a clinician, that's the dance as a practitioner, that's the dance for me as a teacher of things like Qigong and Neigong is let's figure out what's been done to us and let's learn to undo it. But in order to do that, we need to have a practice and we didn't, we need to know what we're doing. We need to have confidence in the experiential and the tangible because practice is experiential. It's not conceptual, but in order to practice in the sense of a process, you need some concepts. So we end up in this dilemma of how, well, let's just be clear as we can about the how and be really inspired by the why. And then remember, this is about what it's like. Nice. You know, and then and that's sort of the dance. So uh, I guess my background is uh, seven years with Eric Tuttle in, in you know, Qigong, Nekong, meditation, a bit of Chan, um, and then the Taoist family tradition. But also... Eric uh, introduced me to a colleague of his, uh, Stephen True, who I studied with for a few years in uh, Shinkagaru Kenjichu, which is the shadow style of sword fighting, as well as studying how to make swords and knives and uh, and the Rinzai Zen tradition, uh, or the, what I would he would describe it more as the unborn mind tradition. Uh, so in that tradition, it's very you could say top down because your mind is the blade of a sword cutting through delusion. And eventually there's no mind, there's no sword, there's no delusion, there's no practice, there's no practitioner because, well, Zen. <laughs> I love Zen for that because they're like, you know, <laughs> there's nothing to do or undo, so <laughs> off with you. <laughs> but at the same time, that takes 30 years to really figure out, like tangibly and experientially. So you can, you know, we can throw lip service to what we can kind of construe from what Zen tries to talk about. Um, so that's a part of my, my background too, is, you know, training with Eric, training with Steve, 
uh, in Nekong and, and like formals and training uh, in lineages and stuff like that and then in, in the Taoist lineage and um, and in, in a way none of that means anything because if if anything really means anything it's your capacity to sit and find how to do undoing that sounds like a paradoxical dilemma well i mean that that's why this stuff isn't drive through (laughs) you know you can just go and get a fortune cookie and off you go yeah you know and it is the practice that's the point you know I, i can't remember who said this but it's uh a uh, contemporary Buddhist person said that if you actually have a practice and can sit in meditation and shift into the quality of that experience, that's the enlightenment experience. So the practice is the enlightenment experience, the idea that you're going to suddenly walk through some door and, you know, get a shiny hat that says you're now better uh, is sort of a Western way of looking at practice and enlightenment anyway. So uh, it's good to have good teachers. It's good to have a real coherent understanding of the process but i wouldn't put myself as in some way the uh, hierarchically ahead of anyone or better than anyone i mean if you have a teacher and you have a practice and you're engaged in the practice and it's working that's gone so keep going (laughs) and if it's subtle and it's hard to tell where you're going and why then it's nagel you know kind of comes back into that saying of like it's about the journey not the destination absolutely and so the journey would be in this sense the practice yeah <coughs> and the, the thing i really appreciate about taoist practice and uh in the ida when you tradition it's uh, a lot about chinese medicine's perception so a, a lot of it actually rests in the the meridian systems of the body the organ systems of the body the soul you know systems of the of the body um as it's understood and those things don't have to be legitimized as absolutely true or untrue they're just good tangible formal patterns uh, for pattern recognition and interaction with your practice so that's a big part of nigong is actually learning to have a an inner landscape and train that allows you to proceed or have procedure or process or progress right and again the progress is the undoing so in the west that kind of feels a little bit like a mental car accident to be like oh i'm gonna make progress at undoing wait a minute (laughs) yeah 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 it's kind of hard to really (coughs) conceptualize but in the experiential nature i'm sure that would be very tangible of you know having a part of yourself unravel that maybe has been holding you back or has been messing with you in a way and then all of a sudden it unravels and then things are different yeah well less is more keeps keeps coming up eh? less is more yeah um actually one of my favorite quotes uh if i can if i can quote you from one of our conversations is uh you don't need to add anything and that one took me a while to really understand that i was the one actually doing the adding of the distress and all of that well maybe i would reframe that because i don't remember that conversation but I, I think i would reframe it as you know we often say in in midlife they were somehow over the hill you know so i'm just framing that for the imagery of the hill it's absolutely necessary for the beginning of the journey as as a becoming person you know moving from childhood to adulthood to add and at a certain point you get to the hill and then the only way to really from a meditation point of view get anywhere else is to subtract right so i wouldn't say it's one or the other i'd just say you know add until it is cloying and then realize 
good job. Now it's the other thing. <laughs> cool. Um, so I was having a look at, uh, you kind of have a layout of how you teach the Nagong stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but you said you wanted to, uh, do something experiential as well. Well, th this is the thing about embodied meditation is, um, it's about how you actually come into state, uh, somatically and physically and posturally and with your breath. So I used this quote a while ago, um, that I say a lot the body is the mind before the mind is the mind so if we were to take a moment and sit into what i would call the three moments of meditation what's your body mind mindful of right now right what's consciously and unconsciously up you know in the way you're holding your face the way that you maybe that you're holding and this is for the people listening as well as just you and i the way we're actually feeling the concentration of our eyes the way we're clenching our jaw or not the way we may be uh holding a certain kind of anticipation in our tongue the throat the shoulders and i can you know work my way down the diaphragm solar plexus uh, you know what's going on in your perineal floor when was the last time you had a really mind-blowing orgasm like when what what is the embodied sense of embodied existence and and as we kind of sit into the the qualities and the memories and and the states of all of our different um embodying selves then we start to come into being as we actually are coming into being but in the embodied sense because if, if you were doing qigong negong any other kind of meditation even lying on a i don't know a yoga mat you know on uh you know in the middle of a you know perfectly still monastery or something like that your attention has to move into your state of being as an embodied animal to go anywhere else or you run the risk of actually dissociating into a little bit of a happy thought bubble you know cartoons have the thought bubble uh that's something i see a lot in in people who practice um kind of top-down meditation is they tend to park their location of awareness just outside of their head in some dimensional sense and they just hold their attention there going like La, i'm perfectly fine everything's good i'll just ignore all my animal instincts reflexes somatic memories and 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 kind of just hold that but there's a sort of dissociative thing and you know if we were to take that to the the sort of sword zen thing then we would take the blade to whatever comes up but again we're, we're still just sort of the mind being the mind so if we go back to all those places you know your face your eyes your jaw you know your solar plexus your diaphragm your perineal floor all of your joints your seated posture and just be the body as the mind before the mind that's what's on your mind You know, if you had a lot of coffee, that's what your mind is like. If you haven't had enough coffee, well, you might want to renegotiate that relationship. But um, it's the same thing. It's like we're either at rest and at peace and ready for deeper stillness, or we're just actually needing to go into the restlessness of the body. Some of us don't like being embodied. Some of our lives have been hard in a way. So there's a fatigue, an ennui, a, a mild depressive kind of, oh God, the body, oh God, the things that have happened, you know, and we've all had things happen. Some of us had, have had a lot of things happen. So 
we have to move into the what's called the barrier of sitting as the body in the body for the body because the mind is the body before it's the mind so that's the first moment of meditation is welcome home to the body but to come home and to the body like a warrior comes home right you gotta face everything you are facing everything as everything that's making you face the world the way your body feels because that's the way you face the world because so much of our experience is implicitly unconscious until we make it conscious i mean that's that's maturity in a way is bringing the unconscious into consciousness it's just 80 percent of that is twitches and cringes and flinches that are held in your nervous system in the embodied way right and it doesn't mean you have to do all of that all at once or over 20 years to finally be okay it just means you have to meet it and say yes and then the body goes okay we're on the same team you're not trying to ignore me you're not trying to oppress me you're not trying to whip me into shape i'm not a bad dog right and that's sort of the trick about some modern practices is we're trying to make the body better because we're dissatisfied with it from the outside in because of instagram or whatever so again the body's like well screw you like i'm the vehicle to get you from here to wherever you want to go into spiritual practice but you're dissatisfied with how you're going to get there ah <laughs> so until you're in like kind of on the same team you're not so that's the first moment in meditation at least in the gong is all right let's go team this is a team sport and a lot of the gong is going to be meeting what comes up from your embodied experience yeah, the image of kind of like riding a horse comes to mind. But yeah. it's like, because you got to be in harmony with that horse, right? Yeah, well, that comes up later, and we talk about the three selves, because a part of you is just an animal, you know, and go team. <laughs> so, <laughs> go team animal. <laughs> well, <laughs> how else do you think we got here? <laughs> so, let's say we're in that moment of meditation now. We're embodied, we are the animal, the horse. And we're, we're friends with that. We're, we're not in a hurry to do anything about it. But if we sit for probably anything more than three to five minutes <clears throat> or three to five hours, you're going to notice that your thoughts are going to keep coming up and they're going to keep coming up from an embodied memory or an embodied need or an embodied, you know, aspiration in some way. Or just because you're uncomfortable because sitting still for hours is kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> Can be, yeah. Right? So this goes into that second moment of uh, meditation, which Nikong is very you know, precise with, which is learning to observe what arises and either move towards it collaboratively, like, okay, yes, and I know why I'm having the stream of thoughts, or perhaps more with a kind of shunning, which is I'm not going down that rabbit hole again because that's just a conditioned, hypervigilant, paranoid, egoic identity festival of insecurity or something and there's nothing serving me going down that rabbit hole that far except high school never ends damn it you know so sometimes our inner observation skill is like hmm i'm going to move into the dialoguing part of meditation with my inner dialogue which is an instinctual part of your mind you can't make it go away uh, it's not a problem it's meant to create solutions but we want to collaborate with it so we have that observational transition in meditation of, yes, this is up. Yes, this is something I'm going to 
maybe journal about or need to have a conversation with my partner about or finally change jobs or, you know, move out of my house or whatever so that I can find recourse for the implicit need to keep having that conversation because that's why I keep having the need to have that conversation because it's not over. Mm. So in Nikong practice, that's this boundary, the boundary of sitting in the body as the body for the body, the boundary of should I collaborate or shun the voices in my head. And that's just a skill. It's just like, imagine getting on a subway. Who do you want to shun and who do you want to sit down and have a meaningful conversation with? Well, it depends on the subway and how much acid people are doing. <laughs> <laughs> very good converse. That's a very good question, actually. Right. You know, so we, we guess, I guess we're just kind of honest about that in, in, in the practice of that. And, and again, recognizing a lot of those voices are coming up from an embodied state, embodied memory. So they're not really separate, but we're facing them as somatic and then as uh, inner dialogue. So if we can have that second observe, observational part or guanxiang moment of uh, practice, then we can move into what's called yin yang, which is like a directed interactive quality of attention. So yi uh, in Chinese can mean attention, intention, or maybe more precisely or surgically, somewhere between intent and attent. Now, English doesn't use the word attent. We like attention because it seems like it's a process and it's getting us somewhere. It's funny how we can have intention in English and we can have intent in English. What do you think the difference between intention and intent is? Hmm. Intention seems like it's like almost like done in a way. And intent is like, okay, like intent, like I, here's my intent. Uh, but my intention is like, I don't know, I guess it kind of seems like it's like better formed. Yeah, one's on outcome, one's on state. Right? So we have attention, which is on an object moving through space and time, or else why could you, there's no other way to pay attention to anything as consciousness. We need the event space, and we need a perceiver, and then we need something going on. So we have attention, but we don't really in English say attend. But E is really that, that little, I don't know, I know the, the things you can do with awareness between the bookends of intent and attend. So yin yang is taking that space between intent and attent and moving it interactively into something like your qigong, your neigong, your breath work, your posture, your uh, third eye, your dantian, your mantra, your mudra, your whatever, right? So what we're kind of doing is going from distraction to description to directed awareness because the barrier of sitting is the distraction of comfort discomfort right the distraction of the mind is hey let's talk about this now we finally have a moment to sit down and chat and i've got this list of things instinctually to work out with you because i'm your subconscious mind and god damn it i'm important so <laughs> yeah it's like your email inbox that yeah, hasn't yeah. Been checked, right? yeah yeah i use that I, you know the email inboxes as sort of a metaphor because when you sit in meditation after you get comfortable or comfortably uncomfortable <laughs> you're going to be dealing with all those little up unconscious emails so you might as well dive in and you know tick them all off 
do do the do the thing <laughs> do the shunning and the yeah no and, uh, you know if you practice every day or you know more than a few times a week then they don't pile up anymore and in fact it just becomes kind of a like a acknowledgement to the i don't know the traffic going by this conversation right now it's just oh yeah that okay there it goes oh yeah that okay there it goes and then then it isn't so much processing it's just part of the procedure of moving into yin yang so the more we can move uh, inter into interactive awareness, the more we're actually moving out of anticipatory awareness. Like, what happens next? What is this for? What does that mean? What does that mean about me? What does that mean about whose fault is that anyway? Blah, 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 blah. When we come into the interactive potential, it's in a way, uh, I think when I talk to people clinically about this who don't really practice, uh, who I'm trying to encourage to practice something is, imagine you're balancing a broomstick on your hand. And the only thing you can do is be better at balancing a broomstick on your hand. There's n nothing else involved here. There's you, your hand, gravity, and, you know, how twitchy you are and how top-heavy the broom is, right? Yeah. So that's, in a way, kind of the metaphor for coming into Inyan is you just need to find the center of something that's got enough interactive potential to hold your interactive awareness. So breath posture you know whatever it is we decide dantian interactions are and all of that so that's those sort of the, the three gates or the, the three moments of meditation oh yeah i've been running around doing stuff i now have to sit still okay barrier of sitting okay now i'm compelled to think things through the barrier of observa observational interaction and sort of the um hygiene of the mind and then sort of the Jedi moment of, okay, now I'm in practice. And the howling silence of Tao usually shows up and, you know, Nagong <laughs> ensues. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mike, this is probably a good time to take a, take a quick break. Uh, so we'll come back with part two and we'll get into those six grottos. Okay. Alrighty. See you guys soon. In the spirit of patience, let's take a short intermission. When you are ready for part two, tap the link below.